BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Now, the worst thing is apathy about your team. And uh, I think we solved that riddle this year, but there's another challenge around the corner. And, you know, I think our guys are starting to get that feel again about how much longer to St. Lucie so we can start getting this thing ready to have another chance to roll the dice. That's the last thing I'm going to ask you right there, Buck. You got any message for Mets fans ahead of this offseason or next year? What do you we, need, we need you. How's that? You know, they played an integral part. I mean, there was a couple of times the old guy needed to go to the bathroom, but I stayed in the dugout to listen to that song and watch the fans react to Edwin coming in. And, you know, our ownership stepped out very quickly this offseason to, to get Edwin in the fold. And, um, you know, we're not through. We're going to keep uh, holding uh, an or- a team that's very dear to so many people in high regard. And we're going to grind it. We're in Flushing tonight. Uh, and we're here for a reason. There is no off season, And we will not leave any stone unturned until uh, we get this thing right. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, November the 20th, 2022. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and you can show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com, and I want to welcome in the good folks from the fan-sided podcasting network, as well as RisingApple.com. Welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast, leading right up into Thanksgiving. The hot stove is starting to get a little bit hot. It's starting to get a lot chilly outside. We'll be able to warm your hearts and give you a little bit to chew on here over the next hour. A lot to talk about. Jacob deGrom news. Maybe an import from the Far East. We'll have a guest that's going to tell us a little bit about that. Dom Smith is no more. The Mets seem to be going bargain basement shopping for bullpen arms and for component players. We'll talk about that. And, oh, I'm sure something else will come up. Will I be able to still say by the end of the show that you could get me on Twitter? Does it matter anymore? I was told on, what, Thursday night everybody was saying their goodbyes on Twitter and running over to Instagram, running over to Facebook, and I was kind of laughing because I'm trying to figure out as I go through, um, you know, my news feed, which is what I use Twitter for, 
And who's going to be more wrong? The demise of Jacob deGrom and the Mets, you know, Jacob deGrom, who's going to be more wrong? Jacob deGrom coming back to the Mets or the demise of Twitter? So far, some of the rumor mill makes it seem like both of some pretty bad predictions. But anyway, um, we'll start off here. You heard the clip coming in. Well-deserved award, Buck Showalter, Manager of the Year. I'm not going to get too deep into it. You guys know how I feel about Buck and the transformative figure that he has been ever since he took over uh, what, right before Christmas last year. And, I mean, he is, if you put him up there in the pantheon of Mets managers in just one short year, he hasn't even really been on the job a full calendar year. He was really hired last December, so he's almost a year. But he's right up there with Gil Hodges and Davey Johnson and Bobby Valentine and, and right there in terms of impactful managers in Mets history in just one year. And you heard the message, uh, complacency. I think that's going to be a big message that Buck is going to bring into spring training because this team has had success. This team built foundational uh, equity with uh, all its stakeholders. I think that after the season, we talked about this, there was a a trust factor that maybe, and I think the media will play it up. uh, Certainly that last two weeks of the season, the bad series in Atlanta, the bad wild card round against the Padres. There's this trust equity that the, uh, relationship that the media will play with the team and the fans. I think Buck is ready for that. And I think it's important, as he said, and you heard in that clip as he was talking about going forward, that chomping at the bit, getting back to St. Lucie, continuing the focus and attention to detail and the and the goal of being the last team standing and all the things that go into that, you know, as they build the team up, you know, there's going to be new players, there's going to be new faces brought into the fold. We've already seen some of those with some of the moves made this week, some of the component moves made this week. So Buck is already on message, and those are going to be a couple of key points. And as we get towards spring training, you'll hear me talk more about it, the trust factor that the media will play between the fans and the team, the trust. Can we trust this team? Can we invest in this team? And complacency, not looking back, looking forward, and realizing that what you accomplished in 2022 was great. It built some nice foundation, but... If you don't push forward and leverage that stuff in a way that this organization did not do the last time they built a great foundation in 2015, it all will crumble. You'll be back to square one, and 2022 won't mean a hill of beans. As a matter of fact, 2022 means about as much as 2000 and uh, 1986 and 1988 and 2015 because it's in the history books. It doesn't matter anymore. A couple of quick hits before we get to the big thing. You guys want to know my take on not only Jacob deGrom because there's been some Jacob deGrom news and Justin Verlander news and basically news about the Mets shopping at the top end of the free agent market, but news came out about possibly reinforcements from the Far East. Now, Japan is a a market that the Mets have not really touched in a long time. Uh, you know, they've touched it a little bit over the years with Sinjo and other component players. Uh, Hisanori Tanaka, uh, who was actually a pretty underrated, uh, I thought, left-handed pitcher. If I'm right, he's left-handed, I believe. But the Mets have touched it a little bit with some component relievers, uh, you know, and, and what have you. But not in a big way. And, and perhaps, well, they actually tried to get Daisuke. Daisuke wound up coming later on when he was at the end, the tail end of his career. But they tried to go after Daisuke. They got bid by the Red Sox. It turned out to be fortuitous because Daisuke was a bit overrated as, as a major league pitcher. But 
Kodai Senga is a electrifying right-handed pitcher that is a free agent coming out of Japan. His agent was at the GM meetings. He's being talked about. The Mets have uh, spoken with him. Potentially, I would say maybe a Chris Bassett replacement, maybe a Taiwan Walker replacement, depending on how you look at it. Well, I'm going to have somebody actually who has seen him pitch and covers Japanese baseball, Jim Allen. Jim Allen uh, is a journalist, a former journalist out in uh, Japan. He had a chance to join me earlier tonight. It's actually Monday in Japan, so he's a day ahead. So we know that there is a tomorrow. Um, and Jim Allen, if you could follow him on Twitter, at jballallen. jballallen.com is his website. He writes about Japanese baseball. He had a chance to write about Senga. And we're going to hear a lot about Kodai Senga from Jim Allen, a guy who's seen him uh, pitch and talk to him, actually. I've seen some clips. I've read the hype. I've seen what the agent says. I'll give you my thoughts about that, but that'll be a big part of what we do today. So is there help coming from the Far East? Is Kodai Senga that help? We'll find out what Jim Allen thinks in a little bit. So let's start out uh, where we're at. You heard about Buck. Uh, A lot of times when a team is built, we talk about the big fish, and like last year, the Max Scherzers and Mark Canna and you know, Starling Marte. And and those are the guys that are going to make or break a season. But what we don't often talk about in the offseason are moves like of some guys that had impact, maybe not major impact, but fast and fleeting impact, like a Nick Plummer who had a game-tying home run and Adonis Medina who had a big save in L.A., uh, Trevor Williams who was a throw-in in the Javier Baez deal and how many games and innings he bridged to help the Mets when they were... Uh, a little short or needed some uh, length because of a blowout or a doubleheader or what have you. And these are the kind of players that during the offseason sometimes get signed as minor league free agents, sometimes are under the radar moves. Well, the Mets made a few of them. And I think what you saw this week and over the last, uh, you know, between the trade they made with Miami and some of the waiver pickups they made is this is where rubber's going to meet the road with the analytics department because they are looking for a specific type of pitcher. They are looking to use these pitchers for depth. They obviously want guys who have options. All these guys have options, so they're going to be able to be shuttled. And they're looking for the next Yoan Lopez. Or, and I know he's still in the club. And Adonis Medina and, and guys like that. But So you saw this week the Mets. And these are moves that you know we're not going to talk a lot about. But I'll tell you, don't be surprised. Come July in a doubleheader, a William Woods... Or at some point, maybe Stephen Ridings is uh, an electrifying seventh inning guy that we're arguing about. Should he get more time in higher leverage situations? Uh, Eliza Hernandez, you know, does he get starts at a doubleheader? Is he the guy that, you know, if Max Scherzer needs to go out like he does every year for two weeks, could sub in and give you, you know, maybe six innings, three runs for a couple of starts? You know, Jeff Brigham, Br- uh, Jeff Brigham can, can he replace, you know, maybe Seth Lugo? Or uh, Michael Givens and give you those you know innings in the sixth inning, you know some of those lower leverage relief innings. We don't know. All we know is that each of these guys profiles to have some decent stuff. They all have an injury history, it appears. And you know what you're hoping to do is cobble together some decent performance. So really, to me, those moves, and it, it goes back to what I talked about last week: the importance of spending money to bridge the gap until this farm system can develop. Because right now, you know, other than Ronnie Mauricio having some great Dominican Winter League uh, numbers, 
and some of the excitement you have about Alvarez and Vientos and Bailey, Mets don't have any pitching in their own system to complement what you already have in the Tyler McGills and the uh, David Petersons. And Peterson's probably going to be in the rotation. So these are important moves. The Mets are going to be relying on their analytics department. The Mets are going to be looking at these moves as potentially uh, players that can eat up some innings. And who knows, maybe one or two of them starts to become key parts of the bullpen. Clearly because of how much money it's going to take to sign Jacob DeGrom, to sign Brandon Nimmo, um, you know, to fill out that rotation. They already brought back Edwin Diaz. Uh, they're going to have to be able to find value players. And this is where the Yankees, the Rays in particularly, the Dodgers, this is where they shine. I mean, I was looking at when there was rumors about the Rays and Mets making a deal earlier this week. I went up and down the Rays' big league roster. I'm looking at their bullpen. I'm like, man, that's the no, – no names. There's no $20 million a year closer. And I love Edwin Diaz. But I'm looking up and down that bullpen, and I'm like, man, look at how they find these guys. From their system, from the scrap heap. And I'm saying to myself, geez, I mean, now John Curtis, who the Mets signed coming off of Tommy John surgery, who, by the way, was with the Rays in 2020, and I think it might become a really big part of the bullpen. Uh, you know, he's one of those guys. You know, so the Mets have put some time into finding the value equation because right now they have Edwin Diaz and Drew Smith. You know, Adam Adovino at 36 years old, his market's going to get expensive. But I think they want to at least go out and bring one or two within the budget relievers back. And, you know, from what I see, they have about $100 million to spend. Now, DeGrom is going to play a lot into that, and I'll get into that after the break. But right now, this is where, whoever, with all the money they've spent to bring in all these smart guys and gals in order to figure out where the market inefficiencies are. Where are those diamonds in the rough? You know, where is these guys that could come in and out of nowhere put these crazy bullpen numbers up, just like Tampa? There's no reason why Tampa could do it or the Mets can't. Is Steven Ridings that guy? Well, we'll see. Most of these guys have an injury history, so who knows how much you're going to get out of them. Maybe you could get, you know, enough performance out of them. I mean, even the Yankees with Clay Holmes, they pick up these guys from Pittsburgh. They have all these bullpen arms. I'm saying to myself, the Mets got it. I don't want five of them. Give me one or two. Give me one. Start there, and we'll we'll build from there. So be interested to see how these moves and what this says about the Mets' uh, talent evaluation, their analytics department, and so on. So, you know, who will be Trevor? Will, will Eliza Hernandez be Trevor Williams? You know, we don't know. So... And then before we take a break, one last time, and I'll get to this. You know, so Dom Smith gets non-tendered. I don't think that's a surprise. I mean, look, you know, at, at the end of the day, the biggest failure of Sandy Alderson coming back, in, and in this particular situation, is the Mets taking what was an asset that was always, how shall I say, you know, an overrated asset, an asset that may have looked better for a short period of time in 2019 and 2020, the fact that they didn't take Dom Smith after that 2020 season when he was in the MVP conversation in that ridiculous 60-game tournament, mega tournament, and not trade him and get him at his highest value. I mean, who knows? Maybe you could put him in the Cleveland deal and you could have kept Jimenez or Rosario. Maybe Jimenez could be you know, held back. I don't know. I don't know if that was realistic. Uh, the fact that they couldn't do that and they did it for all the wrong reasons because of off the field during a politically charged time reasons. 
That, to me, is a total black eye on the organization. Exactly the kind of thing that happens when you have a new owner and a transitory front office. And hopefully we move past that. But that's where the lesson is learned. The biggest lesson out of that is don't let emotion, don't let off-the-field garbage get in the way. Maybe you could make that argument that the Mets did that a little bit with Edwin Diaz and Timmy Trumpets and the marketing of that. But Edwin Diaz has some real tangible on-the-field value. Dom Smith, back when he was given the job as an outfielder full-time, you know, when he got off to a hot start as a pinch hitter in 2019, look at his numbers in July of 2019 before he got hurt. And he was out until he hit that three-run home run to win a ball game at the last, the last day of the season. He wasn't hitting. And he got hot in a pandemic season with no fans in the stands, where everybody was locked down. And that's, you know, no travel. Basically playing a tournament on the East Coast, playing, you know, the Yankees, the Red Sox, you know, anybody that's within a short distance. And the fact that they, you know, the, I mean, to me, it's it's an asset that was totally thrown away. Because if you were able to sell high and you knew you were going to have to sell high, and you did, and even though you, you had this feeling that he was a mirage and you were afraid to because of off-the-field politics, that to me is just ridiculous. And to me, that is always stuck in my craw. I'm glad he's gone. I'm glad we don't have to talk about Dom Smith anymore. I don't wish him any will, you know, I don't wish him any ill will. Uh, I don't see him ever being anything more than a league average, the below league average defensive player who could pop a few home runs. Maybe there was something more going on. I have a feeling there was some off-the-field stuff. He alluded to it. Uh, but Dom Smith is no more, and I'm happy because I'm tired of having that conversation. Pete Alonso not just t- did not just take the first-base job from him. He ripped it away, and he ran and lapped him many, many times. So there's that. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, Jacob deGrom is in the news. Things are starting to look promising. However, the Mets are doing their due diligence. Let's talk about how it's being covered. Let's talk about DeGrom and where we're at there and my feelings on the whole situation. And then we'll get into this mystery man, Kodai Senga, this reinforcement from the Far East. Maybe the Mets don't have to go to, you know, to the States to get their reinforcement in the rotation. Maybe they go to Japan, a place that they haven't really spent a lot of time or done a lot of business in the last few years. So we'll take a quick break. Be back with that and more right after this. Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big-time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one. Triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You twice were the big free agent in the free agent market. Once as a very young player, 25-26, where you went to the Texas Rangers for 10 years of $252 million. Then within part of that, you were able to opt out and maximize that and do 10 years of $275 million with the Yankees. So you were you had it at two different points. I guess if I was going to crystallize this and ask you, what is the piece of advice you would give to someone who's in this position? Because the first time, again, as an outsider, it seemed to me you got the money but ended up in the wrong place. And the second time you got the money, but you risked possibly leaving the right place but ended up there anyway. About the idea that that nexus between making sure you maximize your financial goals as a player, but not do it in obscurity or in a place that can't win. Yeah, I think I'll start with uh, your first question is what advice would I give? I I think it would be I became a free agent at 24 and then again at 32. And at 32, what I learned was that it is my decision, my family's decision, not uh, representation, not marketing, not friends. It was ultimately my decision. So to meditate on that and to really get involved with the negotiation, I do believe players today are smarter than ever. Information is more prevalent than ever. Go out. And if you want to be somewhere, make the phone call and say, hey, I want to be here. I want to be treated fairly. Let's sit down in a room for three or four hours and get it done. And I- All right, we're back. Uh, you heard Jill Sherman and John Heyman. That was back from actually the summer. I saved that clip because I thought it was a a good clip listening to A-Rod talk about his free agencies. And I'm not sure Jacob deGrom falls into the A-Rod category. Aaron Judge probably falls more into that category. But I thought that was very sound advice by A-Rod because I've been thinking about Jacob deGrom. I've been thinking a lot about the rumor mill. And, you know, some positive stuff came out yesterday. You know, Mike Puma said that, well, if all things being equal, if the money's equal, deGrom will resign with the Mets. I think that was kind of something we figured all along. And I love how, you know, now it comes out, well, Mets had a Zoom with Justin Verlander and they miss, met with Jamison Tyon. Well, that's what they're supposed to do. See, one of the things that was bad about the prior ownership is that because of their cash flow issues, they dealt with things piecemeal, one at a time. And in order to really be an effective franchise and compete in the top in the free agent market and fill multiple holes, you got to have a lot of balls in the air. You got to be able to do that. So, you know, I, I don't really think any of this, the fact that they, uh, you know, met with Justin Verlander is all that surprising. The Mets want to play in the top end of the market. Billy Epler said they want to have a strong one-two punch at the top with Max Scherzer. If they don't get the Grom, they'll fall to Verlander. I'm not sure how realistic Verlander is. I'm not sure Carlos Rodon. I know that I've heard John Harper talk about him. You know, he's going to cost, a, uh, because he's got a qualifying offer, he's going to cost a ton in draft pick and, and international uh, uh, money equity. And he's a huge injury risk. And he's going to require, because of his age, a much longer-term contract. So I don't see him as a realistic option. I think if they're going to play in the top end of the market, it's going to be DeGrom or Valander. 
And personally, here's what I keep hearing, and I find it interesting. And this is where I think A-Rod's advice is sound. I don't know what happened the first time they negotiated. I thought it was clumsy and awkward from a DeGrom's perspective that his former agent, who took the job as GM, who compl- you know supposedly recused himself, but come on. It's like, okay, I recuse myself. Wink, wink. I think he really wants this. Like, how do you truly recuse yourself from the negotiation? I mean, you're going to tell me there was never any conversation at any point in time in a meeting room. Well, this is what I think he would want. And I don't know how involved he was. Was the agent involved only? You know, he switched agencies since then. How much involvement did Jacob deGrom have that first time when he was a free agent before the season and the Mets got what looks to be a very good deal? Now, I personally don't understand how people think deGrom got screwed because at the time it was a good contract. And yes, he came off a Cy Young season, Jacob deGrom, but let's remember, before that Cy Young season, he was struggling in 2017, and he had a very good back half of the season in 2017, and he was hurt in 2016. So he was coming off a Cy Young season. He's not the guy that he is now, not the guy that had another Cy Young in 2019, and potentially a third Cy Young in a short in 2020, and had an all-time Bob Gibson season before he got hurt in 2021, and then came back and you know was pretty darn good up until maybe, you know, a couple of starts at the end. So the guy that we see now is a lot different than the guy in 2019. We knew he was good, but I don't know if we knew he was up there with Max Scherzer in 2019. We knew he had the potential, and he was that's the trajectory. Look, at the bottom line is DeGrom and Scherzer, depending if you go to Fangraphs or Baseball Reference, they're 1-2 in the last, you know, five, six, seven, eight years if you use wins above replacement. And what I find a lot really funny is everybody seems to, oh, I, well, DeGrom wants to be here, and he doesn't want to be here, and he doesn't like the Mets, and Zach Wheeler says this, and, you know, this guy says that, and, you know, I mean, you know Noah Syndergaard says this. I've never seen DeGrom, other than saying that he wants to opt out, and he would like to have dialogue with the Mets, say anything negative about the Mets. And it's funny because, you know, and I love John Heyman, but all he does is run around and tell everybody, well, it's more likely Judge signs with the Yankees than DeGrom signs with the Mets. And I don't see how that's possible. I, don't, I just don't see how that's possible. Other than, you know, the pinstripe colored, colored glasses that go on in this town sometimes. I think DeGrom, if he's smart, he's playing it just like A-Rod told him to. You know, you have your agent and you have your business people. You talk to your family. What do you want? Clearly, he wants to get paid. Clearly, he feels he gave away dollars during his last contract that he can't get back personally with his age and his injury history the market was set by Max Scherzer last year and Justin Verlander who's a little bit older which is basically three years and 130 million dollars that's the three-year window you know give or take five to ten million dollars that's what he's going to get paid and personally I'm the Mets I think that that's where they're at it sounds like they probably are a little hesitant to go even three years but I think it's going to take a three-year guarantee for them to get this guy back. And then maybe there's some options for four and five. Maybe they could do some kind of opt-out if DeGrom really is light years better in the last next two years and healthy. There's all sorts of things you could do. That's for them to figure out, not for us here. Now, if he goes out, because right now I hear that he wants to win and he likes the Mets and he thinks the Mets could win a World Series. But what I'm hearing, and I've been hearing since spring training, is that he wants the best monetary deal. If somebody's out there that's going to go out like the Colorado Rockies did 
in 2000 and gave Mike Hampton a seven-year deal. A little bit more than what the Mets were offering. Then the Mets went 105 million. I think they went to you know 125, 130 million. And you know they go out there and they get crazy. A team that you wouldn't even be talking about. And he wants to go there because he got the best deal. I will not begrudge him. But and and nor do I think he should turn it down if it's guaranteed money. I find a hard. I find it hard to believe that's going to happen. But if that happens, he's gone. And there's not a heck of a lot that you could do about that. But more than likely, in my opinion, what you're seeing is DeGrom just trying to go out there, scratch the itch to know that he put all that he could out there to maximize his value. And more than likely, he's going to come back to the Mets because really both sides need to see this out. There's tremendous amount of risk on the Mets part. Everybody acts like there's risk on DeGrom's part. Well, if he comes here, how do we know that this team could win a World Series during these next three years? Well, by the way... How do we know DeGrom is going to be healthy? He hasn't been really healthy for two years. It's as much of a risk. The Mets back last year when they decided, instead of going for Robbie Ray or Kevin Gaussman or going and and, and, and and looking in different directions in the trade market, they went all in on older, elite Cy Young pitchers when they teamed Scherzer and DeGrom. And we saw very little of those two guys together. And when they were together later in the year, they actually, Mets didn't always win. It was weird how that worked out. If he comes back, he'll he'll pass Doc Gooden in terms of win shares this season. Pretty much before Memorial Day, he'll probably pass him or thereabouts. And only one pitcher in Mets history will stand ahead of him, and that's Tom Seaver. So think about it. All the stuff that was talked about when all those pitchers, when Sandy Alderson took over, Matt Harvey, the Dark Knight, Thor, Syndergaard, the kid from Long Island, Stephen Matz, who some thought was the best out of all of them. Even at Rafael Montero. Rafael Montero, who just got a contract as a reliever, by the way, was ranked ahead of Jacob deGrom. Jacob deGrom was this kid with long hair that got called up that started to get some talk when Adam Rubin, who used to do the ESPN morning notes for the uh, covering the Mets, started to say, hey, this is this kid down there, Jacob deGrom, you know, from Stetson, what, 11th round pick, uh, unknown, looking pretty good. And then he comes up, gets a, you know supposed to come out of the bullpen when the Mets are having bullpen issues, and he gets an emergency start against the Yankees, and the rest is history. Rookie of the year, a couple of Cy Youngs, big-time performance in the postseason a year after he comes up. I, I'm not begrudging anybody about making money, but unless that there is that Colorado Rockies-Mike Hampton contract out there, I just don't see how it's not in both sides' interest to get this done. Yeah, you got Verlander. You have no idea if you get deep into the weeds with Verlander if he wants to be here. You have no idea. He's been in Texas now for a while. Who knows? Yeah, I know he's got a supermodel wife, and you know they probably would love New York, but you have no idea. Carlos Rodon, way too risky and too expensive for a team that already you know, has a tremendous amount of money tied up in Scherzer and Lindor and may have more tied up in Nimmo and their closer. Yeah, I know they need elite pitching, and they've talked about building on elite pitching, but if you lose DeGrom and you lose out on Verlander, I think the next pivot is, you know, maybe you beef up the bullpen a little bit, maybe you beef up the offense a little bit, and you go a little bit more very good in the rotation with a Bassett 
or this guy Senga from the Far East, Tyon, whatever. But to me, if the money is similar, and I don't see how it can't not be, because I, I mean, the Texas Rangers are going to go that wild here. I keep hearing the Texas Rangers, the Texas Rangers, the Texas Rangers, the Texas Rangers. I mean, the Braves have kind of circled the wagon. But who's giving him a contract that the Mets can't? That who's giving him a contract that the Mets are going to say, mm, "I don't really want to touch that." Are there teams with risks that are above and beyond what the Mets are? How close are the Rangers to winning? If winning is that important, I really believe it's money with Degrom. I really believe he feels like he's left his value on the table. And I personally think this arm's length relationship that we see is almost because. The fans did this with Piazza. As soon as he talked about an opt-out, I felt the whole, and, and he was hurt, of course. There was this whole arm's-length relationship between the fans. There was a poll that came out late in the year, and I think DeGrom didn't really fare well, a fan poll over on Mets blog. It's because Mets fans want commitment. They don't like mercenaries. They treat mercenaries bad. Look at Lindor, what he's been through. Scherzer, you know, they warmed up to, but he's going to have somewhat of a baptism if he gets off to a slow start because of what happened in the postseason, what happened with San Diego. They love Pete. They love McNeil. They love their homegrown players. Mercenaries they have a hard time with, and I think they better start getting used to it because of the money that this owner has now, mercenaries and guys coming in to do what the Yankees had to do in the 90s. They had their core four, their core five. But they had their Cecil Fielders. They had their Roger Clemens. They had, uh, you know, they brought in Tino Martinez as a, as a, on a trade. You know, they brought in Gary Sheffield. You know, they, they brought in all sorts of guys. They always were going out and trying to complement with mercenary type of players. That's the game. That's checkbook baseball. That's what's been going on with big market teams since Red Sox have done it. Yeah, you have your farm system. We talked about that. But, you know, at this point, and I think you'll it's – it's November 20th. We have Thanksgiving week, and then the week after is the winter meeting. So the next two weeks, I think you're going to see a lot of news come out. I can't see DeGrom lingering past the winter meetings. And I'll tell you what, if he wants to, for whatever reason, um, you know, that's when I would start to say, hey, Verlander, you wanted my contract? You know, I'd also put some pressure on DeGrom, and if Verlander comes to you in the next – let's say 10 days before the winter meeting, say, hey, I'm ready to sign here. I'm, re- I'm serious about you guys. You better call DeGrom and say, hey, I, I need to move on because I can't see them signing both. And it's as simple as that. All this other noise about what Heyman is saying and Puma and you know, uh, you know, a source in another organization, I don't want to hear it. I really don't. Of course, you know, the Mets would have liked it to be like Edwin Diaz and they get everything signed, sealed, and delivered. But Nimmo, DeGrom, they want to go out. They want to see what's out there. They deserve it. They earned it. They got to the point where they have this free agency. You know, it feels good to be wooed by other clubs, to hear how great you are and to see what you're valued at. Because sometimes you get tunnel vision when you're in one organization like those two guys have been their entire lives since they've been drafted. And I can't blame them on that. But to me, I look at it this way. Unless there is the Mike Hampton Colorado Rocky deal out there, a stupid deal, and if the Rangers want to play that Colorado Rocky uh, part, then yeah, he's gone. And then it's Verlander or a bust. 
And if it's a bust, then I think you have to reframe the way you look at this team, not from a competitive situation, how it's built. I think you're going to go and, and build a very good rotation and reallocate that money maybe to some offense, potentially. We'll see. Now, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have a guest. Can the Mets get help? Forget about DeGrom for a minute. They're going to need more than just DeGrom in the rotation. Can they get help from the Far East? Kodai Senga is a name that we've heard a little bit about. Mets met with him. Billy Epler has some experience wooing Japanese talent. He wooed Shohei Otani to the Angels when he was the GM there. Kodai Senga, pitcher that has this nasty forkball, which is called a ghost forkball, great fastball, maybe he has some command issues, you know, seems to have some cachet coming over. Is he the next Tanaka? Is he the next Hiroki Kuroda? Is he the next Hardeki Arabu? Who is he? I don't think he's going to be Shohei Otani. There's only one Otani. But what could the Mets potentially be getting? Is he more DeGrom, or is he more Bassett, or is he more Taiwan Walker? What kind of pitcher could they potentially be getting if they sign a Kodai Senga? And should we get excited about the possibility of the Mets signing Kodai Senga? Jim Allen, who is a journalist over in Japan, not anymore, but still covers Japanese baseball on his own time, um, has a great podcast, Japan Baseball Weekly, is going to be joining me. Had a chance to catch up with him earlier tonight. It's actually Monday over in Japan, so it's a day ahead. Jim Allen will be joining me to talk about Kodai Senga. I'm going to ask him a little bit about his thoughts on Otani because that's a name that might continue to get put out there as uh, uh, as Mets fans. And then maybe he knows of some other names that potentially we should look for in the future as more and more talent might be either posted or become free agents from the uh, Nippon Professional Baseball League. So sit tight. we got plenty more to talk about. Kodai Senga, Jim Allen, right after this. Where is this Koda Sengai character going to sign? We know he's good, right? We've, we've had our eyes on him. We watched him in the World Baseball Classic. We can see the numbers online. Who's going to land him this year? Matt, it's a great question. I've heard a number of different teams are scouting him very intensely. I'll give you a quick list, and then I'll explain the reason why he is so coveted. Angels, Dodgers. Rangers, Mariners, and Blue Jays. At least five teams I'm hearing are showing interest right now in Kodai Senga. And one of the key reasons why he is so valuable right now in the marketplace, first of all, he has a tremendous repertoire, uh, really good breaking stuff. The shoe that he throws is excellent. And remember, you think about the dynamics of this free agent market this offseason. He is not attached to a qualifying offer, so there's no draft pick compensation involved there. Furthermore, there is no longer a posting fee attached to Kodai Senga. He had been pitching for the Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks, who typically do not post their players. They're always a very competitive team in NPB. And so as a result, he has accrued enough service time to become a full international free agent. That means no draft pick, no posting fee. He is free and clear. You think about other pitchers who are out there who might be a bit more complicated from a standpoint of either how much they'll cost in money or the draft pick. And I really think that those almost half a dozen teams I mentioned, they're all very interested in Senga because he would be at the very least a number two or number three starter, maybe better than that, depending on the team. And also the overall compensation to sign him will be lower than a great many other pitchers in the market. So Tyler Anderson, for example, he's got the QO. Martin Perez has the QO. Kodai Senga 
does not. Mm, interesting stuff, Kodai Senga, and this is going to heat up, I'm sure, uh, in very short order. Yeah, no doubt about you, it. You've watched him. What do you think? Well, I tell you what, the shooto that he's talking about is a splitter, right? You know, it's hard to get video on this guy. Let's just go to the videotape real quick, guys. I mean, I had to go back and go, all right, where can I find some video? It's all undercover. I had to go to 2017. Look at the fastball riding at 96 on the knees. Then he's got the breaking ball. And then this is the pitch that's putting everybody away. This fastball on the knee, 96. And then the split that he throws is just nasty. That breaks away from the lefty into the righty. He can break it the other way as well. Uh, he's going to be fun to watch. And I'm going to tell you what. You had a few doubters before Shohei got here because the hype was so big on Otani, right? And he has just blown the hype away. I think this guy's going to do the same thing. He has exceeded the he hype. He's going to exceed it big time. Hey, and look, JP, you just reeled off a, a list of about a half dozen potential suitors for, uh, for Senga. And We're back, and joining me, really happy to have him, Jim Allen. If you guys want to follow him on Twitter, at Allen, you can get his website, jballallen.com. Uh, journalist from Japan, uh, Daily Yomiori. Am I saying it correctly, Jim? No, I didn't. Uh, he shook you, his head. You, you Yomiori? Former, former columnist. Former columnist over there. Yeah, I'm, former not columnist. To, I'm not allowed to say my day job anymore. That's okay. Japan Baseball Weekly. Well, you uh, are the you it's are a- uh, Japan Baseball Weekly podcast. And uh, why are we bringing them in? Well, there's been some rumors here, and you know who am I to look at video and speculate on the talents of uh, Kodai Senga, who very well will be signing. Who knows? Maybe by the end of this show, but. Jim has had an opportunity to uh, watch him and other Japanese stars over the years. So welcome to the program. And uh, at this time of the year, Jim, it's probably fun for you because every year there's some kind of Japanese player, star, you know, some kind of uh, individual that gets rumored to come over to the States. And then you become the star of the show and people say, hey, what's going on? So uh, welcome to the program and thanks for joining us. You're it's 24 hours ahead nearly. So you're, we're Sunday night, you're Monday morning over there, just to let the listeners know. I'm ahead of my time for once right. in my life. At least we know there is a tomorrow. There is a tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there will, there will be for an hour or so. For at, at least an hour, right? Okay. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it is fun. And it's also a challenge because so much depends on the adjustments that players make when they go over there. And for pitchers, it's a little easier because they're the ones who are selecting the pitches. You know, they got to, they got to pick what works and they got to see how, how batters play off of their pitches. And, and because what they did in Japan won't work for 75% of the hitters in MLB because uh, hitters in Japan are there's a there's a whole subspecies that's very rare in Japan in America and it's very it's it's a big thing here which is these mostly left-handed usually middle infielder center fielders small left-handed slap hitters who, like Ichiro like Ichiro uh, except Ichiro well, well Ichiro is is sort of like the she, he he's the god of that but he's not really that because right. he he would drive the ball a lot more and he would uh, but yeah, that's, see, that's the player they wanted Ichiro to be <laughs> when they drafted him, a defensive replacement who uh, basically 
bunted and and hit the ball on the ground uh, through the you know through the the third and short hole. Interesting. There you go. So Kodai Senga, uh, Joe Wolf is agent. Uh, let's yes. start with what you said. He feels because of his personality and who he is, the makeup of who he is, that he could be successful. Now, th- let's let's not forget culturally Americans going to Japan, Japanese players coming to America, big seismic shift. I know the world is smaller now because of social media, but the game is different. The food is different. Obviously there's language. Uh, I know of uh, American athletes who have gone over there and said, Hey, got paid a lot, but wow, it was a really big adjustment. I'm sure it's the same way. The other way. Uh, Do you agree with that? You know, I don't know if you know enough about him, but talk a little bit about the adjustment that he will face and and other than the fact he's his agent, why would he be successful transitioning to the American uh, baseball culture? Well, one, uh, I give a plug for Joe Wolf because as agents go, he's pretty, excuse me, as agents go, he's one of the straightest shooters. <laughs> now, he doesn't, he doesn't lay it on, um, he doesn't just lay it on thick. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And Senga, I have talked to, I've had one, uh, I don't know, five or 10 minute conversation with, and he strikes me as being very personable, very animated, very friendly guy. Um, doesn't show that. He's got that, he's got a, a real edge to him uh, when he's in playing mode, but get him away from that. He's just, a, he just seems like a real uh, uh, outgoing, gregarious guy. I thought Wolf's, uh, uh, portrayal of him at the GM meetings was was pretty much spot on. What does he what does he do? What does he bring? He's got uh, he's he's a real fierce competitor and I know all the MLB teams really like that. He's not he's not really big and his arm has got a ton of miles on it and he is frequently his his typical season is that he'll miss two or three spot uh, turns in the rotation because of a uh, discomfort in his elbow or his shoulder or his lower back or something. So that's normal for him. But the pitches, uh, the fastball, the fastball is where I have disagreements with, with some of the, with some of the uh, other data collectors in Japan, the fastball is really, the quality of the fastball is quite good. He's got a lot of hop on it. It's really fast, but the command is is a huge question. He just doesn't throw it where where he wants to as often enough. Uh, there was a, a great analysis piece on it in which that said, you know, players in Japan have to gear up for his fastball. That's not really how Japanese baseball works because not everybody's trying to take him out of the yard. What they're trying to do is. Uh, look, a lot of the, the these slap hitters are looking to cut uh, just look, short, choppy swings, trying to cut the ball and, uh, you know, make contact when, and they'll be looking for one pitch. They'll be looking for uh, the, the pitch they can hit when he can throw it in the zone. And if it's the fastball, they'll be looking, you know, first pitch fastball, the cutter, the cutter's a good pitch. So for that reason, the cutter and the slider, which aren't, which were very effective because everybody's looking for the splitter or the, or the fastball, the splitter. The problem with the splitter is he can't get cold strikes with it. 
If people it's an don't swing, pitch. yeah. If it's if it's not two strikes and if he doesn't have command of his fastball, the ghost fork, as they call it, won't mean much because you'll never get to it at that. Uh, as, well, as he'll that throw it. He'll throw it, but he can't locate it. You know, it's it's a great pitch if it gets in that in that target area, but you know if it's if it's below the zone, but if it's if he doesn't hit it there, you don't you know it could be in Tim Book too. Right. That's that's the pretty much the story with Senga. Now, as a result of that, his other pitches, he'll throw them in the strike zone and people won't be even looking for him. So the slider, uh, I thought that was accurate. The slider is good. The cutter is good. They're not great pitches. They're, they're average, above average. But uh, that that forkball is just deadly. And right. everything everything with him is command. If he has command, watch out. Of course, the problem is that his command comes and goes. Right. When he threw his when he threw his no hitter in the eighth inning, and it looked like there was no way he was going to finish the eighth inning. He started walking people, but he they put him back out for the ninth inning, and then he just reverted to how he'd been for most of the game, and you know lights out. But when you talk about the hitters in Japan and how they're kind of doing more contact baseball. Now let's see what happens here in the States with some of the changes to the shift and the bases, but would that play into his favor? Because he's not going to be facing a lot of that here in the States. He's going to be facing guys who are uh, trying to have high uppercuts and hit the ball out of the ballpark and strike out a lot. And I'm thinking as you speak, maybe the game in Japan is harder for him because of the contact to contact baseball. Whereas here, uh, he'll have players like that, but he'll be facing a, a different type of uh, offensive player. That's a great question. Um, you really don't know because a lot of the Japanese pitchers who who go to the States find it really, um, do find it easier because more guys are willing to swing at anything. But those guys need to locate <laughs> because because. Of, if they're you know if they're leaving fat pitches or they're um, you know the the straight fastball is a big problem in well, it's a big problem everywhere in the world, but a lot of the Japanese guys used to get by with straight fastballs and they don't really do that anymore. Um, having said that, the the fastballs in Japan are getting better and better, and there are guys in Japan who will absolutely destroy you if you miss a fat pitch and they're not just looking to slap the ball. There are some really, really good hitters, but they're, you know, you have that whole, um, that whole species of guys who are just trying to drive you crazy. So he won't have that, but the other adjustments are, the, are probably that's, that's the one the scouts want to talk about. Will his stuff play? But the other question is nobody, and I guess nobody talks about it because nobody really knows the answer to it, which is how is he going to adapt to a different spring training? Different uh, ball, different ball, not not starting once a week. Well, the ball is probably going to work in his favor because the ball is slicker and that's going to help the fastball and splitter because it's going to take some of the, it will take some of the uh, bite the friction off the splitter and most most Japanese pitchers get better fast a lot of Japanese pitchers get better fastballs in the states that's uh, the slider is probably going to be hurt and that's probably going to be the biggest thing until he until he learns how to how to bend that slider the way he does now 
But no, what I mean is the jet lag and the schedule and spring training may seem small, but if you ask the players who've gone to Japan, uh, gone to MLB from Japan, it's maddeningly difficult. They go from a situation where they're they're training really, really hard all day, four days a week for four straight days, and then they have a day off. And they're allowed, they can recover and they can rest, and then they go back and grind. And they get to end. The preseason doesn't start until about three weeks after the start of camp. And so all of a sudden, they're doing every day, and they, they need to work less, which is not really in the Japanese playbook. And a big, and then when they the preseason starts, they're not where they're normally they normally are in when the preseason starts physically and in uh, terms of command and condition and feel. So they get paranoia is a real big problem. Um, I heard this from Masahiro Tanaka. He said, uh, you know, Ichiro was there, Kuroda was there. They told me, don't worry, don't worry, chill out, chill out. But I just couldn't. Right. Yeah. And that's interesting. How do you now this is uh, Joe Wolf described him as a grinder, you know, a guy yeah. that wasn't a first round pick that that had to really work to right. become an elite player. Now, because of who he played for, he was never posted. He might be have been in the league years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I know comps are hard and everybody I hate comps because everybody wants to compare something. But. You know, I was looking at the three quarters uh, arm delivery reminded me a little David Cohn. Like I had to go look at an old David Cohn video mm. and I saw the, the similarities with with Cohn and things like that. Not as a pitcher, but think of like the way that Cohn used to have that three quarters arm slot delivery. Mm -hmm. um, what would his comp be? Because he's a guy that is come out of nowhere, has a little bit of moxie. You know, Tanaka Kuroda was a very underrated uh, Japanese pitcher. Yeah, a very good pitcher for, for the Dodgers and the Yankees. Um uh, that, you know, interesting that, uh, he comes in and, you know, what would the comps be, especially because Otani now has set the bar ridiculously high. I mean, nobody's yeah. going to be Otani. I mean, I didn't think Otani would be Otani when he came. Oh, Babe Ruth. Yes, yeah, sure. You know, we heard about Arabu being Nolan Ryan back in the day, may God rest his soul. But, you know, this guy turned out to be everything advertised. So here, here, uh, Senga comes in and you know, the, especially if he comes to New York, expectations are going to be high well well that's how wolf was positioning him in the market as as you know uh, hideki matsui bring it on i'm ready for you know i'm ready for the big time kind of guy i don't know that that's true um i would say joel wolf knows him better than i do uh, but it wouldn't surprise me um it wouldn't that might be true uh he he does seem like a, he's an absolute uh, uh, insane competitor, and you see that a lot. He does work on his his speed, but I think his speed is a uh, the velocity of his fastball is a bit of a competitive thing with the with the league. He wants to stay ahead, you know, stay up with the league. I think his his really 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 fast fastballs they really aren't that good. They're very straight. And that's going to most of the Japanese pitchers, they'll find that when they go, you know, when they go to MLB and they're trying to throw faster fastballs, they get worse fastballs. And guys are lighting them up and then they shy away from the fastball. Senga, you know, they've got to adjust. They can't just keep doing that. 
or they end up as you know Daisuke Matsuzaka or uh, or Kenta Maeda. They can't keep doing that. And I don't want to diss on Kenta Maeda because I love him, but it's really a it's really a challenge because the pitches that they people shouldn't be hitting they are hitting, and they have to deal with it. And it's not easy. It's also not easy because they their network of support is much smaller. They don't have uh three guys on the other team who you know they knew from the minor leagues or they played with or they knew from high high school or college they got nobody you know they got a coach and they've got to work for the interpreter and maybe the coach wants them to do what they don't want to do <laughs> so well i i'll tell you that's why i think the padres might be even a better fit than the mets they've got you darvish yep. you got a couple of americans that have played with him in Japan, uh, San Diego, the West Coast, a little bit more laid back, even though that's a competitive team. You know, when you start to look at everything, you know, the speculation is Billy Epler was able to sign Otani, New York, the Mets, the money, and obviously money is really important. But I think you just hit something on the head, comfort, and I believe Darvish is somewhat of a mentor to him. To him. So I've always yeah. looked at the Padres kind of like that that leader in the clubhouse, so to speak. Yeah, but the other thing is when you're a when you're a star in Japan, and this is this is probably a bigger thing. You know, it used to be if you're a star in Japan, you had to go to MLB. If you were if you were thirty or below, you had to go to MLB. That's really no longer the thing. A lot of uh, top players in Japan are saying, you know, why bother? It's a hassle. <laughs> You know, I'm making I'm making four million dollars a year here. Uh, I got everything I want. Why would I bother going to MLB? A lot of guys are like that. But one of the things that has replaced that got to go to MLB is I got to be my guy. I got to everybody's got to know that I'm the cutting edge. I'm the trailblazer. That's why I say Suzuki's with the Cubs, where there were no uh, Japanese stars when other guys would have liked him to go somewhere else. That's why he didn't go to, you know, to some other teams. Uh, so I don't, I think the idea of going to play with Darvish is probably not going to happen. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up with a team that trains in Arizona for that reason, because Ichiro's there, Darvish is there, Suzuki's there. That's an ideal place. Uh, that's prob- that, that might be a bigger thing than uh, than being on the same team with them is is training in Arizona with those guys. Because when you're in Florida, you're you're on the other side of the world. You know, your your guy might be in Florida, but he's on the other side of the you know state, or he's in the north, and you're in the middle. So it's a it's a huge uh, difference, but yeah, we don't know. But Senga is is a guy who basically did come out of nowhere, and he did work through an extremely hard. Uh, although he he didn't wait long, it wasn't like he he was in the minors for years. He he had his stuff uh, really quickly. Uh, they didn't use him a lot. Um, partly because that's how SoftBank rolls. They they game the system uh, as as hard as anybody can in Japan, and since they don't post people, that really pays off. Uh, 
uh, in terms of service time. You know, they'd bring him up, they'd bring him up for one game and send him down. He gets one day of service. You know, he pitches seven games and he's got seven days. <laughs> they need of a service time. They need the MLBPA out there. <laughs> they. They do indeed, but that's also not how Japan rolls, unfortunately. That is a it is a different culture. It you is. know, you mentioned um the players maybe starting to say, Do I need to go to MLB and being maybe the master of their universe back home? And for a while there, and I know they changed the posting rules, there was talk that the the that Major League Baseball was hurting uh NPB. It was hurting Japanese baseball, taking stars, Matsui going over and so on and so forth. Tanaka, things like that. Um, you know, how is that viewed? I mean, we know when Japanese stars, Matsui came over here, played for the Yankees, and it was an event. The Japanese media came over and and maybe now it's different because of social media and it's not the same as it was 20 years ago. But you know, obviously this is a you know, valuable resource for teams like the Mets who need pitching to go. And when there's players available, opening up the pool of talent, why not? Uh, what is the view on the other side? Uh, you know, has Major League Baseball, you know, has hurt Japanese baseball? Um, you know, has the, yeah. atti- you know, it sounds like the attitude might change with some of the players. Do I really need to go there? It's not the same as maybe 20 years ago when Matsui came over. It isn't the same, but has Jap- has MLB hurt Japanese baseball? Uh, well, ML, MLB is a predator. I mean, you really can't, you can't put it any other way, but they are, they're predators, not in terms of the, of the Japanese game, but in terms of Japanese businesses, you know, they arbitrarily changed the posting system to suit MLB's needs. Sure. When, when Masahiro Tanaka day, you know, in the, the weeks before Masahiro Tanaka was going to be posted, the Rock Ten Eagles were looking at a hundred million yen transfer fee. Hundred, excuse me, a hundred million dollar transfer fee, and they ended up getting twenty because MLB decided, you know, we don't we don't like that hundred million dollar no, stuff. That's a that's a decent haircut they got on that one. Yeah, so they just changed it, and NPB can't really opt out of that because the players won't. You know, the players are. Hmm, it's good for the teams because of the way MLB NPB free agency works that they can uh, lose guys and they don't have to, and they get some compensation for guys who go to MLB. Okay. But as far as hurting the game, I think it's been the opposite. The guys going to MLB and succeeding have been a huge spark to young players that they can be there's sort of the sky is the limit it used kind of like be, how the dream team pull basketball on the map across the globe maybe like that yeah type of thing yep i can i can play at the highest level in the world i don't you know i can set my sights bigger than just playing high school ball and just playing college ball and and just being, I don't want to ever say just being a pro baseball player in Japan, because one of the things uh, now, if you look at the, the players, uh, major league players, MLB players, and you talk to the guys who played in Japan, uh, like uh, Chris Martin, uh, he basically got his major league start in Japan. He said, when I started, when I made my MLB debut, you know, sure, 
kind of there were butterflies because it was MLB and this was my childhood dream. But going into a, a pressure packed situation with 40,000, you know, 30,000 people in the stands, I'd been there, done that. Sure. It's a joy. I mean, I look at it on TV. It's such a joyous atmosphere with the banging of the drums. I mean, they could, we could learn so much here in the States where, you know, we got people on their, you know, their, their iPhones, you know, here at City Field, they're building all these different clubs, a speakeasy club just to get people into the ballpark. They got wiffle ball going on. And I watch the Japanese culture and I'm like, they're actually going out and enjoying themselves at the ballpark. Look at that concept. Jim is actually, if you're watching, Jim's almost falling off his couch over here, you know, um, and I, I and it. I, and I wonder, you know, uh, segues a little to Otani. I know he's not the topic here, but I wanted to get your thoughts before we wrap up. You know, here in New York, everybody's really like, hey, whether they're a Mets fan, a Yankees fan, uh, you know, he's going to be a free agent. The Angels have already said, hey, we're not trading him. Um, look, when he I just, and I said this you know, earlier when he came over and people say he's Babe Ruth, I'm like, come on. You know, I heard Arabu was Nolan Ryan. Right. And it's funny, the guy, Ichiro, that everybody overlooked. Uh, I always remember the quote from Bobby Valentine where someone asked him when Ichiro was in spring training, can he be uh, as good as Kenny Lofton? He's like, no, nah, he's way better than Kenny Lofton. And he was better than Kenny Lofton. I mean, think about that in 2001 terms. How's cra- how crazy is that? But knowing what you know about Otani, what do you see as his trajectory? Do you see him being the kind of guy that, like you said, wants his own little fiefdom, wants the spotlight? And think about the kind of contract. I mean, he's a hitter and a pitcher. That's worth $30 million a year, American dollars on both sides of the ball. That's a $60 million a year player. We could conceivably see a half billion dollar a year contract. And I don't even know if that's enough value because you're getting two players. But my only question is, can he sustain that on both sides of the ball, even as a DH at a high level, knowing how hard it is to do both of those singularly? Forget about doing it every five days. So somebody who's seen him play on, on both sides of the continents here, I know I'm curious what your thoughts are that's uh that's you know no well first first of all nobody knows but i'm gonna say he's he's a voracious uh, he's not a learner like or he is a a learner i guess a little bit like you darvish uh i i think darvish is going to be a good uh, model a good trajectory for him because they're similar uh i don't want to to diss on anybody but you know they are what they are they're guys who came out of high school without the the most education um Ichiro and Matsi are a little different they were like guys who could have if they'd not been in baseball they would have gone on to higher education and done well they're really really sharp these guys are ball players and Sometimes, you know, they get stuck in what they're doing and they don't see things that are, you know, like the rest of us, they don't see things that are right in front of their faces. And, but Darvish has acquired, has slowly acquired sort of like he's sort of straightened out the kinks in his trajectory over the years since he was a kid. And once he latches onto something, he's a, he's a pit bull. And and Otani's the same way. Uh, he, you know, he was going to keep his his leg kick that he had in Japan because he wanted to prove that Japanese baseball worked in America. But this didn't work for him, so he ditched it. 
he wasn't happy about it. I mean, he, he ditched it and he's happy he's, he's ditched it. He, he, although he keeps saying he wants to go back to it and figure out the way to work. But when things, when he hits a, when he hits a rough patch, that's when he goes into this um, uh, Thomas Edison mode, back to the workshop, back to creativity, back to what's not working. And that's what we saw last year and the last two years, because uh, when he was trying to play Hurt in 2020, it just wiped him out. And he just he threw everything away and he went back to the drawing board and he worked on his nutrition. This is, this is the basis is finding out ways he could be better that don't have anything to do with baseball, uh, nutrition and conditioning. And this is what Darvish did also. He's he looks like Superman because he's learned that something that's something he can do. Sure. And Darvish is and and he took a lot of uh, and Otani took a lot of lessons from Darvish and they're on that same pattern. He's getting better and better at this thing he does, which is spending the entire off season preparing for the next year. And he does it. He doesn't have a life really as you know, as far as I know, he doesn't have a life out of baseball. He'll, um, you he's know, a cage he, rat. He's a cage rat. Basically, he, he is a he's his life out of baseball consists of taking breaks between practice and games, mm. and planning, and sleeping. Uh, you know, he'll play video games and he'll listen to music and he'll cook. But that's that's his that's a that's a that's break time stuff. He's so he's focused more on baseball and on conditioning than I'm going to I don't know MLB, but I would say he's focused on that stuff. More than 99 percent of his competitors because they have social lives. Sure. And he doesn't really. And so can he do it? Who knows? Is he he's the best candidate in the world? And he's been doing this now since he was 18 years old. And he went through a stage where he got hurt. He got hurt a lot. Um, he had uh, base running injuries. Uh, 2000s, he had a, you know, he's had a variety of little injuries. And he's learning, you know, each of those injuries has sort of propelled him to the next level. So he's going to hit he's going to hit another patch where he's hurt. But here's the other thing. Let's say he gets hurt and he can't pitch. Well then you okay, he gets hurt and you can't pitch and then you have Otani 2021. Yeah, well he he he's still could hit and he could be a DH and he could hit at a high level. He could be the best. Yeah, yeah I mean it's it's you know, okay, you're overpaying uh, for only one player instead of two. It's amazing. I'll put you a little on the spot again if you guys want to check out Jim at uh, Japan Baseball Weekly Podcast. I think there's going to be a lot of interest uh, here in the States because I have a feeling that it won't just be Senga. There'll be over the next couple of years more coming out of Japan oh. as as teams look for ways to fill their pitching staff, especially uh, Senga. Who do you profile? What do you see? Do you see him as a guy that's going to give you 150 innings, 10 to 12 wins? You know, his agent thinks he could be an ace on the Mets, let's say, if DeGrom comes back. Can he be as good as Chris Bassett? Because that's what fans are going to be looking for. Certainly looks like he could be as good as a Taiwan Walker type, uh, but Bassett would be the one that probably the team has to sacrifice to go after a Senga, who could be somewhat of a lottery ticket and have a higher ceiling and upside. 
Do you agree with that? And, and what would you predict 2023 would look like for him in a big league uniform? Uh, it's impossible because you can only look at sort of a, a range. Uh, best case scenario, yeah. Yeah, he's best case scenario. He's a guy who's going to surprise people. I mean, first of all, nobody's seen his stuff. So the first years tend to be big years if they're good. If they're translated, if their stuff uh, plays in MLB, the first year tends to be really good. And then people adjust to him and he's got to fight, you know, fight that uh, that trend. So the first year could be really good. He could be a, you know, he could be a 14 win guy. But I'm going to say he's going to also be struggling with the adjustments and and those things are going to get in the way of him a little bit. I think 12 wins is probably a first year comp for him. And then it'll be, he might have a really big season, but I think he's going to have to learn and adjust. I think it's going to take him more than one year. I mean, he, he has the stuff to be, to be a really big winner straight away, but that physical pull, the strain, the strain, the drain, the mental conflict, the culture shock that. The shoulder, the shoulder and the elbow worries me a little bit. uh, Should. Quite a lot. That's going to keep him from pitching 160 innings a year. Is he more of a reliever then? I mean, are they overpaying, giving him starter money, or do you feel it won't matter? Because obviously the bullpen could be very taxing when you pitch three, four out of five days, even if it's just for an inning, you know, the, 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 I, I don't know. He's never, I mean, he hasn't really been a reliever since he was about 21. So, but he's used to that. I mean, he can, he can, I think he's adaptable. I think he would find a way to make it work, which is pretty much the Senga. I guess if there's anything about Senga, it's find a way to make it work. Can't ask for more than that. I don't think he's a guy who's going to say this is, he's he's the opposite of uh, Daisuke Matsuzaka in that what what worked before doesn't matter. He's, you know, more more so than Otani. Right. He's going to if if it works, if it works, he'll he'll keep he'll keep pounding on it. But what uh, I don't know, he's that unique among Japanese pitchers, but he is he certainly that's his attitude. He's not going to be he's going to be more uh, like Hiroki Kuroda in that respect. He's going to take how MLB does things. He's going to learn how people do things there. Kuroda uh, was throwing 300 pitch bullpens in Japan once it, once every spring. He'd finish it up, and I saw 320 the one time I was at the carp camp. Oh my God. And- and that, they'll put him up over a military tribunal here in the States for doing that to yeah. a picture. Let me yeah, tell you. So, so I asked him, I said, so what'd you do when you went to the States? I said, I looked around me and I said, how do you guys adjust to the season? We said, you know, 15, 20 pitches. And he says, okay, it's, I'm good with that. <laughs> you know? And, and I think that'll be Senga. He'll be like, okay, let's try that. Let's and try that. It certainly will will help you out. So what do you got coming up on Japan Baseball Weekly? Obviously, the fans can get you at uh, uh, jballallen.com. Great post if you guys want to check out about uh, Kodai Senga uh, from November 1st. You can check it out over there on Jim Allen's website. What do you got coming up, Jim, for the listeners? Well, for the listeners, we don't have a podcast coming up for probably a week or two. But if you go back, we'll be talking at week. Uh, John Gibson, who's the podcast, the guy who created the podcast, uh, Johnny Gibson, uh, he has done an amazing job 
Bob, and I would be nowhere without my my buddy. And we talk about everything about Japanese baseball uh, during the season every week. Comes drops on Monday. Uh, it'll be Sunday, Sunday night your time. And you can go back and listen to the old episodes. We've got up now. I've got to work on Masataka Yoshida, the Oryx Buffaloes. Uh, probably the best pure hitter in Japan uh, is going to the States, but he's going to be 30 um, early next year. So that's a huge drag, but I, I have to do a profile of him. He took me by surprise. So that's what's coming up. And then the next thing, of course, is the next wave is Roki Sasaki, the uh, now 21 year old kid who threw, uh, I guess he threw 20 perfect innings uh, in a row. Wow. (laughs) Uh, yeah, yeah. He threw a, a nine-inning perfect game. He followed that up with an eight-inning perfect game, and I think he had two perfect innings uh, before that. So actually, talk about not... talk about setting the bar high there, Jim. That's the yeah, bar high, I'll yeah. Tell you well, that. he's 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 something, and he's uh, he's something. And the other kid is uh, Munetaka Murakami, who who wants to go. But these guys are so young. The posting system, the way it, and international free agency, the way MLB has defined it, that guys like Shohei Otani, who is a, a five-year veteran and an MVP, were amateurs. Yeah. And could and could only sign for minor league contracts. So Very good no... value. The Anaheim Angels got a good value, but the next team, whether it be Anaheim or what have you, they're going to pay. That's, I told they're you, that's a pay. half billion dollar contract. If Well, if it he's... is, it is. He's, well, he said when he was negotiating uh, how much would it take to, well, I should say, Nez uh, Bolello, his agent, said it would take uh, best annual value per year to to sign him to a multi-year contract. He was talking $40 million a year. Absolutely. Uh, this was a year ago. So to keep him as a free agent, that's what he's going to be looking at. It'll be It'll be interesting. So no, there's lots going on in Japan, and I hope uh, hope everybody gets a look at it. You can see Japanese baseball on Pacific League television. There's a lot of there's occasional streams here and there. Do pick it up. It's absolutely tremendous talents here, and they play the game a little differently. So uh, that's fun too. Well, Jim, have a good uh, rest. Well, it's Monday. I can't say weekend. Glad that there's tomorrow. Thank you for joining us. Let's do this again. Let's keep in touch. And I appreciate all your time tonight. And that's Jim Allen. You can check him out. JB Allen. J, excuse me. JballAllen.com. JballAllen.com. And you can check him out on Twitter. JballAllen. At JballAllen. So good stuff. Talk about me getting that one wrong. A 50 ways to Sunday. All right. Let's take a quick break. Wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. So you guys heard from Jim Allen. And I'll tell you what. I mean, I saw some clips about Kodai Senga. I mean, he's got – I mean, when his fastball was on, it was nasty. And that forkball for sure – 
the Ghost Fork Bowl. I mean, I could see the T-shirts right now, like Ghost Fork Bowl T-shirts and like there being some kind of crazy graphic over at City Field and it won't be quite Timmy Trumpets, but it'll be pretty cool, right? I could see it now. I, I think depending on the contract, and I still stand by my thoughts where if he goes to San Diego, he's with Darvish, he's with a couple American pitchers, in uh, Suarez and Martinez that were with him in Japan. I think there might be some comfort there. A little bit more of a calmer environment, shall we say? I mean, I know that money talks. Uh, when I start to look at, and, and, and remember this, the Mets have about 100, assuming they want to stay somewhere within $300 million payroll, Mets have $100 million to, to suspend in, their, in that ballpark right now based on the budget. I mean, you go to Spot Track, I look at, you know, the arbitration raises, kind of where they're at, give or take, depending on how they look at the Cano money. They got about $100 million. So 45 of that's going to go to DeGrom next year. And another 25 will probably go to Nimmo. So 70% of that's already taken for two guys. You got another $30 million to get yourself some bullpen help, to potentially get yourself another starter or two. So you want to go and make that money stretch out as much as possible. And I know you guys are rolling your eyes. Well, it's Steve Cohen. He could spend, yeah, maybe he could go above $300 million, but it better really count. And are you willing to go over $300 million for a Japanese pitcher who lacks command, you heard that, potentially has some shoulder and arm problems, may need some time to adjust to MLB. Now, if he's Hiroki Kuroda, that's not a bad comp. And Hiroki Kuroda was a very solid pitcher for the Dodgers and more so for the Yankees. But it did take him a year or two to get adjusted. And if you have DeGrom and shares at the top, I think one of the things that really mitigates some of that risk that comes with two 35-plus, nearly 40 on the on Scherzer's part, age pitchers, is consistency below him. And I had my criticisms of Carrasco and, and Tywin Walker, how they beat up a little bit on the Marlins and sub-500 teams, but there is going to be sub-500 teams that you're going to play, and there's a lot of them in baseball today. So, you know, if that's what they're going to do, that's what back end of the rotation starters do. But really what made it is that even though he spit the bit a little bit when Scherzer first went down, Bassett, and I think between that, how he had to adjust to being the man, when Scherzer went down, and then some of the nerves he showed in the Atlanta series and in that final start against the Padres, I know that that gives you some pause. But the consistency of a guy that potentially could give you 170, 180 innings has been in the conversation in a top five Cy Young performance with Oakland. Won 15 games. Doesn't seem to be rattled, so to speak. Can I think he's the kind of guy and the kind of personality that can learn from some of the issues that he had at the end of the year. See, I would still go after Bassett. I think Bassett's going to cost you 20 to 22 for three years or so. And I know that's risky as you start to look at, you know, another 30-something pitcher. But Jamison Tyon is not Chris Bassett. He's more Taiwan Walker. I mean, when I brought up my spreadsheet from earlier in the year, when I looked at comps to replace the Walker slot in the rotation, it was Haney, it was Clevenger, it was Corey Kluber, it was Jamison Tyon. Noah Syndergaard, none of that was was guys like, you know, that's not Bassett. If you want to replace Bassett, you know, that's hard. You know, you got Tyler Anderson, you got, uh, you know, that's really it. He's gone. He's off the board. Andrew Haney, to me, is more replacing Walker because you don't know how many starts you're going to get out of him. 
I mean, one of the guys, and he would have cost a lot because of the qualifying offer, one of the guys that replaces Bassett's off the board. Now, is Singer that guy? You know, you're looking for a lot of upside. I mean, Jim gave a very honest review of Senga. And it was there was a lot of enticing things about him. But I'm more willing to take that chance with the Walker spot in the rotation than with the Bassett spot. And if DeGrom doesn't sign, then, you know, all bets are off. You know, then it'd be interesting where this thing goes. Then you really have to sign Bassett. And then maybe you go and you get this lottery ticket. I mean, maybe a lottery ticket is a little bit of a, of a harsh way of looking at it, but it, it kind of is. I mean, there's tons of red flags, the command, the shoulder inju- in, in, injuries. You know, look at his delivery. There is a little bit of David Cohn in that. You know, I, I thought of that when I started to uh, look at him. And I'm not a scout, so maybe I'm way off on that. But um, it will be very interesting where the Mets go. The Mets have a lot of pokers in the fire. And I look at this spreadsheet I made up where I look at how do they replace Bassett? How do they replace DeGrom? How do they replace Walker? You know, obviously Carrasco, they don't need to replace. They kept him. Peterson is going to be that, you know, does Carrasco and Peterson become the 4-5 and they're really looking at only replacing the 3 and obviously the 1-1-A one one with DeGrom? And then that changes if it doesn't if it's not Verlander to Grom, you know Rodon. I don't I don't even have him really as an option here because I don't think the Mets are going to go that route because of the cost and that's a ton of risk and a ton of, of future draft capital that they have to give up. They need to rebuild this farm system. They really are not in a position the Mets to give up draft picks and international signing money. They need to rebuild this farm system. It's an edict of the owner. Epler has talked about it. They cannot bridge the gap with money forever. It's only a two to three, maybe four year bridge, and it has to be a less and less of an emphasized bridge as they go forward. They'll still have a two hundred ninety to three hundred million dollar payroll, but look at the cost of players. It continues to go up. It's going to be really hard to keep your top players. They're all going to make up, you know, sixty percent of your payroll. And the real question is going to be: Are you the two thousand seven Mets who have eight to ten really good players, and the other? 15 players on the roster, eh? And then forget about 25 to 40. Or are you going to be more like the 2022 Mets who really were able to find some diamonds in the rough and were able to get a lot out of roster spots, 26 to 35? And a lot of that is not from their farm system. Some of it was with McGill and Peterson. A lot of that had to do with between the prior regime and this regime, bringing in guys like Walker, you know, adding Carrasco to the Lindora deal. You know, finding Trevor Williams as an add-on. I mean, really working the value equation. But that value equation has to go into the farm system. If you're going to sign a Rodon and give up a couple of draft picks and international signing money, you're just making that job that much harder. And that's a guy who's had some serious injuries. Yeah, he's elite, but risky elite. Let the Rangers have him. You know? Let the Giants re-sign him. So, so you heard about Senga. Interesting segment with Jim Allen, a new guest. We always try to find some good and interesting guests here on the program. And, um, you know, hopefully that you enjoyed that. So I want to thank everybody for tuning in. I hope you have a great week. What's the schedule like? Yes, Thanksgiving's coming up. Nothing better than Thanksgiving Eve. A lot of you guys, that's one of the best nights of the year where you have that long weekend ahead. What do you have? The time off from work. You could just enjoy some good food. You know, get together with people that you enjoy. You know, maybe you're into football, you know, you know, obviously Thanksgiving Day, all the football, fantasy football. I have, I have a couple of Cowboys on my roster, so I'll be watching some games. 
And then you have the nice long weekend. You get ready for the holidays, whatever you celebrate, and get the the, the holiday decorations up. So, and and the best part is, is that even though you have that little bit of a pause with baseball free agency last year, if you remember Black Friday, Billy Epler went nuts. It was Eduardo Gescobar, Marcana, and Starling Marte. I don't know if we'll see that this year because there's no lockout looming on December second. But I think the next two weeks things are going to really get hot, and then I think they're going to slow down. And then, you know, we'll see what's left after the holidays and Christmas as you head into New Year. Will players drag things out to Valentine's Day like they've done in the past? I don't think so, but I definitely think they're going to be guys that are going to be there in January. That's when they'll start to get nervous, and maybe you could get some good signings with some good values back then. That's where I think the Mets are going to go with the bullpen. I wouldn't say Adovino is going to be one of those guys. I think if I were the Mets, really, if you look at what they have to accomplish, is get DeGrom signed, move to Nimmo at the same time, See if you could get Bastet and Adovino into the fold. I don't know where Senga falls into that, if he's primary or secondary to those guys. And, uh, you know, after that, start to be opportunistic and see what bullpen arms and and other uh, possible additions come your way. All right, that's it. Hope you enjoyed this edition of the Talking Mets podcast. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Salat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Salat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. Enjoy your Thanksgiving. Yes, we plan on having another Talking Mets podcast next week during the holidays. Till then, take care, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.